where we start off here, it's rather precarious because uh, we just came from the gifts, uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so now we're kind of like just jumping somewhere at the resurrection. And uh, I remember when this came up, I said, wait, what's happening? What happened to the previous chunk before? And so what you'll notice is that if you go back uh, some months back, uh, we did a portion on the resurrection. Uh, we did the first few chapters, pardon me, the first few verses of chapter 15. And so now we're just continuing onwards. So don't worry, uh, we're not picking and choosing what we preach on. We're just going back and forth, but we'll cover everything. So when uh, I was chatting to someone yesterday, uh, unnamed, a band, someone in the band, and they said, uh, they said, oh, are you preaching tomorrow? I said, yes. And they were like, um, yeah, the band has concluded that, uh, yeah, good luck with this, uh, with this particular scripture, right? And so, so I was like, okay, cool, <laughs> you know? This is obviously going to be very hard, right? And then I spoke to Oni, and Oni was like, oh, no, man, this is a very easy text, right? So now I'm very conflicted as to, you know, where do I merge these too, you know, on the, on the one side, it's like, this is going to be very hard. The other side, on is like, nah, man, uh, slam dunk. So, so, yeah, so moving along, um, the text that we'll be reading from, uh, it's quite a lengthy one. It's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 12 to 34. Um, take out your devices, your Bibles, follow with me. It will be up here as well. Um, let's read God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on the behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? 
If the, deed, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. <laughs> Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus Christ, we thank you once again that we can be here this morning, Lord, that we can um, hear your word. Um, Use me as a vessel, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that may speech may be seasoned uh, with your wisdom. And it's not me that is speaking. I pray that you may uh, prepare the hearts of everyone that is here, Lord. Um, prepare their hearts. Give them a taste of the Holy Lord. I pray that they may have an encounter with the risen Christ. I pray that we take away all distraction, Lord. Uh, the music, um, all things that are peripheral. Uh, the lighting, uh, even the stage, even myself as the person speaking, Lord, that uh, you are the one at the center, Lord. Thank you. We praise you. Uh, lead us for the rest of the service. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Fantastic. So, when, when I went through the scripture, right, and I read the first two verses, uh, 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed to, raise, to be raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no res- resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So I thought to myself, easy, slam dunk, right? All I'm coming here to do is just to prove the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what Paul does at the beginning of chapter 15. Um, and I would implore you guys, right, you should read the whole of chapter 15, right? After this in the week, it's beautiful. So this is almost Paul's theology 101 in terms of the resurrection. He starts off with giving us reasons why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. He gives, he says there are eyewitness accounts, right? 500 people, the 12, uh, the rest of the apostles, Right? And then he enters into this, which is our text for this morning, which is essentially, um, some of you don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and these are the implications, right? So initially, I, I thought I just have to come and prove the resurrection, but in actual fact, we could miss it. What Paul, what Paul is saying here is that the church in Corinth, what was happening was that they, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they in their mind, it didn't have implications for believers, right? So factually speaking, they say, no, we we believe this guy was raised from the dead, but that doesn't do anything for us, all right? And so all of Paul's argument is essentially that can't be the case because Jesus Christ has been raised. There are implications, right? And so we need to dial back into the culture and realize that this was a Greek-Roman society, right? Uh, there was lots of wisdom at that time. And so the whole concept and idea of we will be resurrected with new bodies, it felt like a fairy tale, right? It was all wives' tales, right? All wives' stories that, nah, this, this is stupid. <laughs> this doesn't make sense, right? And so Paul's pretty much going through the saying that these are the implications of not believing that we will be raised, right? And so as we go through this, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not, if, for, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And so, it's, it's, this is one of those scenarios where we are a highly churched community culture, right? So the whole idea and concept of the resurrection, we've, been, we've probably been hearing about the resurrection since, since we were kids, right? And so whether or not you believe in Christ or you do believe in Jesus Christ, whether or not you're a believer or not a believer, in some shape or form, you probably believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? You probably believe in the resurrection of believers, right? So to, for us sitting here, there's almost a sense of, we can look at the people in Corinth and say, how dumb are you guys? Like if Christ is raised, then surely you will be raised as well, right? And so we can almost get onto a high horse and say, you know, this is not applicable to me. This is not me, right? I believe that if Jesus Christ is raised, then believers will be raised alongside him as well, right? And you're probably going to say, switch off now and say, you know what? I'll dial back in later on when he gets into the more complicated stuff. This is not, this is not applicable to me. But this morning, I'm going to say that perhaps this is not applicable. But the truth of the matter is, in certain aspects of our lives and how we do life, right? This does happen to us, right? And so, simple example, right? Um, you don't have to raise your hands because everyone will raise their hand. At which, point, at which point have you guys ever felt like, man, I've disappointed God, right? I've come to the point of, I've done it again, right? God is probably not happy with me, right? And so at face value, it just seems like it's something simple. God is disappointed at me, you know? Um, but when we dial into the gospel, we know that when God looks at us, if you're a believer, he sees the work of his son, the perfected work of his son, right? So, G, so, so God is, no longer looks at us as we are in our own sin, right? He sees the transformed, uh, the transformed believers, right? So now we are, we are righteous before him, right? And so the whole concept of that, we have disappointed God, in essence, we are saying that Christ's work was ineffective. That is what we're saying. We're saying that Christ dying on the cross, him being resurrected, it was not enough. There's still room for God to actually be disappointed with us. right? And so with the church in Corinth, they were saying that, you know what? Christ has been resurrected, but that work doesn't flow into our lives. Right? And so that's why Paul goes on this rant of if Christ has not been, if we are not raised, then Christ was not raised. Right? Then Christ's work on the cross was ineffective. Right? And so we need to understand that as believers, when Jesus Christ does his work on the cross, perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection. Right? He's not giving this to us in parts. This is not uh, mobile service providers giving you 10 megabytes, 100 minutes, 1,000 SMSs. Right? Christ is not saying, you know what, I'm going to give you regeneration, but justification, you're going to get half of it. 
It's everything, right? It's the greatest package that we could ever get, right? And so when Jesus Christ says it is finished at the cross, it is finished, right? No sin can be accounted upon us. He has died. And therefore, for us, um, it takes us to our first principle, which is that there's a deep, unshakable link between the life of Christ and the life of the believer, right? So whatever Christ, Jesus Christ has achieved on the cross, when we come to believe in him, when we come to lay our faith in him, this permeates through our lives completely. It starts from being justified, being regenerated, and even being resurrected alongside him. All right. So this then moves us to verses 17 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most to be pitied. And so, what Paul is saying is essentially, guys, if we are not, if we're not to be raised to Jesus Christ, then everything that we do, it's futile, it's vanity, that we might as well stop all of this, right? And the whole idea of that, then those uh, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This idea of perishing, this is, this is not just going out of existence. This is that even as a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ has not, has not been raised, or we are not to be raised, in essence, we are still under sin. In essence, we still under God's wrath, right? And so Paul ends it with saying that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so essentially it's that if, if all our faith is in Jesus Christ and yet there is no hope of the resurrection, then what is the point of all of this? Right? We might as well live our best life now. Right? We might as well enjoy our time here. Right? In essence, we, we are the worst end of the stick because as Christians, we've put all our eggs in one basket. And it's going to yield absolutely nothing, right? And so this brings us to principle number two, which is without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no reg- regeneration and justification. Right? And so we'll go through um, some scriptures. Uh, Romans 4.25, uh, who was delivered? The who in this instance is Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ was delivered up for trespasses and raised for our justification, and the, this, is, this is good news, right? This is that when, when God looks at us, right, he looks at us in Christ's clothing. We've been justified. We've got right standing with God, right? We are not still in our sin. In Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then Second Corinthians 5.17, my favorite, very encouraging. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in Christ, we've got justification. We've got regeneration. 
You cannot split this from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross down to his resurrection. And so, and so sometimes it, it feels like, I understand, it feels like these things are not happening to us, especially the whole idea of being a new being, right? I think a lot of us will go through seasons of, man, I'm struggling, man, why, does, why can't I get myself out of this? You know, what is the sin that keeps following me, right? And so, with regeneration, my, my, my encouragement to you is, you know, when we, look at, when we look at the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right, it's, it's done, it's finished, right? Christ, Jesus Christ is not calling us to live a perfect life, right? We're not being called to live a perfect, he's done that already, right? If we are in Christ and we're still to do uh, our works in order to, in order to gain God's, um, God's pleasing pleasure, then we miss the point. But we're called to a life of worship, right? This is worship in obedience to who God is. This is worship in how we conduct ourselves, right? And so through the resurrection, um, we are justified and we have regeneration. Without the resurrection, we don't have those things, right? So this takes us to our next scripture, which is... Um, 20 to 23 and this is where Paul gets he gets tired he said you know what there are all these things that I'm saying about why um, the, re- the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is deeply linked to our resurrection he says but in fact Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead right um, the first fruits of those who are fallen who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at those, then at his coming, those belong to Christ. And so the whole idea, the whole idea and concept of, um, of Adam is, it's, it's something that's very hard for us to, to take because at the end of the day, we... We are Adam's children, right? And this is evident in our everyday lives, right? And so sometimes we want to war against that. But I'll just ask you a question. It's going to get personal very quickly, which is who has disappointed you the most in your own life? <laughs> yes. We, we have disappointed ourselves the most, right? We can't even live up to our own standards. And that is almost a small picture of Adam working himself through us, Adam's DNA, that even, even at our best, the standards that we set ourselves, we can't meet those standards. How much more God's standards, right? And so if you're still arguing with that, uh, I, I have a daughter, right? She's 17 months now. Um, she had a, she's at a stage where she's pinching and hitting, right? So... Uh, I promise I do not pinch my wife. <laughs> I do not hit my wife, right? And so, as funny as it sounds, it's very sad because when we see this, we, we don't think this is just a misbehaving baby. But this is essentially Adam working himself through her. This is that old man. This is, this is that wretched heart, which is why every night a prayer is not... 
may you, may you give her a bright future. What I pray is that may you ransom her. I pray is that may, may she get to know you fully, right? Because she needs Jesus Christ. No one, no one taught my daughter how to pinch, how to hit, if, I'm not, if she's not getting her way. But it's in her, it's in her nature. And that is the fallenness of man. And so, in some shape or form, we are all Adam's children. And so, Jesus Christ comes along, right? Uh, born, uh, comes into this world, becomes human, lives the perfect life, dies on the cross, and is resurrected. Amen? And so through this, we get the resurrection. And so the whole concept of first fruits, it might be foreign to us. Um, and when we go back to the, to the culture back then, the whole idea of first fruits was it's, it's an agricultural term, right? So during the harvest, they would essentially uh, try out the very first set of the harvest, right? And so that harvest was, if it was good, it was an indication of the rest of the harvest, right? Therefore, if you reap something that's good right now, it means that the rest of your harvest will be good. If it's bad, then this will filter through the rest of your harvest, and so the whole idea of first fruits here is that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among the dead, which moves us to our next principle, which is that Jesus Christ is, he is the prototype, right? Jesus Christ is the first one. And so for all believers, we have this comfort that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Um, he had a new body, banging new body. And therefore, at his second coming, we will get the same body. We can all agree that this body is not, it's wasting away, right? You, you feel aches that you never felt, especially if you're growing older, right? Uh, you feel aches that you're not supposed to feel, right? It's constantly warring against us, right? Uh, it's subject to wear and tear, and no matter what we can do, no matter what medicine comes up with, it's got a finite lifespan, right? And so in Jesus being the prototype, when he has his new resurrected body, it's almost a seal of approval of saying, this is what is to happen to you, right? Your body, this is not where it ends. Your best life is not now. Do not try to live life right now as if this is it. There is something better. I'm going ahead of you. Oh, he is an example of how things will be. So this then moves us to our next one, which is then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, um, God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And so this is a tongue twister, I'll be honest. It's a, it's a lot of sub subjection, a lot of subjects. And so, so I borrowed from our brothers at the NLT, I'll just read it for us again. This is verse 24 to 28. After that, the end will come when we will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. 
Of course, when he says all things under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority, so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. Right? And so, very, very simple principle. It's not, it's not going to go up. It's, there is an end. There is an end. Right? And so, I know sometimes we live life in a far, it's, our lives are very fast-paced. And we just want to get to the end of the day. But there is an end. And this may be good news for you as a believer. It might be bad news for you as an unbeliever. But there is an end. And let's not gloss over that. And then the other thing is, which is our principle, which is Jesus Christ has his ultimate authority. Right? So the, the fantastic thing about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, it's not that Jesus Christ is writing the blueprint. Right? The blueprint has been written. The blueprint was written in Genesis. Right? This is how life is going to happen. This is how God is going to put in a plan, set a plan in motion to ransom his beloved people. Right? So when Jesus Christ is raised, when Jesus Christ is resurrected, this is all part of the blueprint. This is the blueprint playing itself out. The blueprint has been written. Jesus Christ has ultimate authority. Right? Jesus Christ has the ultimate victory. Right? Um, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. What does, what does it say? Um, all power in heaven or some of the power in heaven? Is it all or is it some? All of it. Right? And is it has been given to me or was given to me or will be given to me? Has been given to me. And so, I, and I understand that for us, it's, it's very hard to live in this tension to believe that Jesus Christ is reigning right now. And he is reigning right now. All right? So when you read the scripture, he's saying that... Um, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. The whole idea of until is that he is reigning now. Right? And so perhaps Jesus Christ's reign right now is not what we expect it to be, which happens a lot. The Jews missed it. Right? Jesus comes they're expecting military might, and they miss him, right? They had preconceived notions of how the Savior is supposed to come. They had preconceived notions of how the Savior is supposed to save them, and they missed it, right? Now, we might miss it now, right? I'll be telling you, I'll be preaching to you right now that, no, Jesus Christ reigns now. He is all authority, and it might not feel like that in this current world. It might not feel like that in your life right now, Right? But Jesus Christ does reign, right? Jesus Christ reigns when you wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I just want to stay in bed, right? This bed is warm. But you're like, man, let me, let me go to church. Let me go hear what they have to say for me, right? Jesus Christ reigns in that moment where you're like, I've done it again. I don't want to do it, but I've done it again. And then you repent, you say, God, forgive me, right? Jesus Christ is reigning when in those moments we say, you know what? Honestly, in my comfort zone, 
but I need to go out there. I need to sacrifice, right? I need to place myself in an awkward situation where I'm either serving or preaching the gospel to this person. And one of, one of, the, one of the great things that I heard uh, some few weeks ago was when Kyle and Marion were up here and through the tough times they were going through, they testified to people that were intentionally um, saving money, cutting the expenses to help them, right? Jesus Christ reigns when we continuously die to ourselves every day. This is dying to self, whether it's in the context of a community like this, whether it's in the context of um, your family at work. Jesus Christ reigns because he's winning the battle for your soul daily when you choose him, right? So Jesus Christ reigns. And in reigning, um, we see here just the depth and the harmony uh, in the Trinity. It's beautiful, right? And so what we see here is Jesus Christ essentially getting all authority. The Father says, I'm giving you all authority, right? In that moment, Jesus Christ is not trying to usurp his, his father's authority. But there's this amazing harmony that existed in eternity past, right? This is the whole idea of that. Even though Jesus Christ is subject to the father, right? He's not lesser, right? His job is not, it's not something that is like, well, what am I doing? I want to be the father, but we see this great harmony in the, in the Trinity, right? And so as we move on, um, move on to verse 29. Uh, I don't want to labor through this. And it reads as, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on the behalf of the dead? The dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on the behalf? And so this is Paul using rhetoric, right? And so... We might miss this and try and go through, go through what Paul is trying to imply by this, right? So I'll be honest, I read through this. There are pretty much a whole lot of interpretations of the whole idea of being baptized um, on the behalf of the dead, right? And so I picked two that were closest to what this might mean. And some of us might be familiar with it because uh, it's something that's, that's happening now with the Mormon church, right? And so there's the whole idea of um, vicarious baptism, right? So this is essentially someone who was a believer passed away, but they were not baptized. And so myself as a believer, I get baptized on their behalf, Right, so that's the one possible meaning of or what could have been happening at that time. Then the second one is um, it's more of the dead in this instance. It's that I'm getting baptized in the in the hope of resurrection. Right, I'm baptizing on the behalf of this dead body, this dead weight on myself. And so what we could miss in this instance is that the point is what does this mean? And the honest truth is that this doesn't matter. What Paul is saying is actually, the bigger point is, if you guys are baptiz- baptizing on the behalf of the dead, why does it matter? Be- 
because the dead will not be raised. So the point isn't so much what's what here, but the point that Paul is trying to say is that why, why are we doing this? It's all in vain. It doesn't matter, right? And so uh, in some of this, it's actually, in terms of doctrine, it's off, right? It's off. And so as we move along, um, verse 30 to 32, why, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts of Ephesus? Um, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And pretty much Paul comes back full circle where he started. Different wording, but from verse 12, this is where Paul had started. Right? Paul is saying that we're doing all of this for what reason? It's all vain if there is no resurrection. All right? And so, this brings us to uh, our last principle, number five. Uh, the resurrection of believers ignites Christ-centered, gospel-saturated risk-taking. And so what we see here in Paul's life is uh, if you went through Paul's journeys, he's, he's been martyred, he's been persecuted, he's been through a lot. All right? And Paul is saying that if there is no resurrection, then all of this is futile. And so Paul is putting a lot of weight on the resurrection of believers. That the resurrection of believers has a direct link to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't have one without the other. Right, and so in Paul's life, the resurrection ignited him to do this. Right, there were there there were other things, empowering of the Holy Spirit. But for him, he just looked at this current body as just a vessel to minister to go out. Right, he was beaten near death, and so. In believing the resurrection, this ignited um, gospel-centered risk-taking. And so, to go back full circle, you know, to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no res resurrection of the dead? But we now know that there is resurrection of the dead, right? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Right? Me standing up here, that's got a lot of weight on eternity. And then we are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're not misrepresenting God. We're telling the truth. Telling the truth of the gospel. It says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And our faith is not futile. And we are not in our sin. We've been justified. Paul says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we can safely say that they have not, been, they have not perished. And if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
And in this, we can safely say that we should be the envy of the world. Right? People should look to us and say, man, this, this news is amazing. This good news of yours is it's different from anything that we know. And so, it's probably about to get awkward very quickly. And in, in preparing this, it was very convicting for me, right? So we see, we see Paul's life. We see the last principle, which is um, the resurrection pushes us to the point of risk-taking for the sake of the gospel. Are our lives like this, right? As, the, as knowledge of that, we will be one day resurrected in the new body. Has our knowledge of that driven us to risk-taking that essentially um, puts us in a position where um, our lives are gospel-centered, right? Or are we eating and drinking for tomorrow we die, right? And so, so this is very convicting because perhaps we're not eating and drinking for tomorrow we die. Perhaps for us middle-class South Africans... Um, we're adequately set for for when we retire, making sure that, man, that pension is being paid and it's adequate. We're raising our families well. But if if that's the way it ends, if there's no risk-taking in our lives, if there's no reflection of that, man, if I die today, it, it doesn't matter because I'll be resurrected. Because this this is what... For us as, as Christians, what we've done with the resurrection, we see it as a, as a future event that has no bearing right now, right? So we see it as um, for any loved ones that have passed away, right? If, they de- if they die now and they knew Christ, it means that when I die, I'll get to see them again, right? And then the other one is I'll be resurrecting a new body. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about this dragging me back. I don't have to worry about this constantly putting in a position where I'm in a constant repentance mode. I'm, I'm going to be in the new body, perfected just like Jesus Christ. Right? And that's where we end. It's always almost like a future event, but when you look at Paul's life, when you look at the disciples' life, right, after seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ, this fired them up for ministry. This fired them up for risk-taking, right? And so I'm not up here standing. I'm, I'm not saying that you need to go get beaten next to death. I'm not saying go get persecuted or martyred, right? But are we taking risk in such a way that there's a difference in our lives? The idea that I will be resurrected in a new body, has it moved us? to living life on the edge for the sake of the gospel, right? And this could start, this could, this could start at very, very simple things, right? Not call, God is not calling us to plant churches tomorrow. Sometimes it's just, the, it's a small risk, right? It's sharing the gospel with your, with your colleague, right? It's starting with the people closest to us, right? It's reaching out to the people that no one wants to reach out to it's placing ourselves in, a, in positions that, man, this makes me feel uncomfortable, right? This is a risk, and I might get egg in my face, but this is fine for the sake of the gospel, right? 
I don't want us to be in a position where, as, as rooted, when we think about the being resurrected uh, with Jesus Christ, all we're going to show is that, well, you know, I used it for myself. Uh, I made sure I was in good shape and I tithed, etc., etc. You know, but are we being moved to missions? Are we being moved to do things which require us to put more faith in Jesus Christ? And so we move on and Paul lands the plane in a, in a somber mood and he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. And do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And those are very, very hard words, but Paul is loving us. And Paul is saying, um, if, if you have issues with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then perhaps you might not know who God is. That's a big statement. And you might war with me right now, but I say war with the scriptures. It's here in the scriptures. All right? And so one big thing here is that um, do not be see bad company ruins good morals. So Paul is saying, uh, who are you hanging out with? Who's speaking truth into your life? The most important truths. Right? It's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's very, very simple wisdom. We become the people we spend time with. Right? And so if people are not breathing life into you, and even though it doesn't seem bad, it's death. Anything that is not saturated in Jesus Christ is death. Right? It might be it might be clothed in good morals, but if it's not Christ centered, then it's death. And so who are we spending time with? Who's got influence over us? And people breathing life. Are they breathing proper doc- doctrine? Right? And he says, Wake up from a drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. Um, for some have no knowledge of God, and so some of us might have to put ourselves in positions that, man, th- does my life reflect someone that knows Jesus Christ, someone that is in deep relationship with Jesus Christ? Has my life taken a, a major shift since knowing Jesus Christ, both from before I knew Jesus Christ to who I am now? Like I said before, the disciples were with Jesus for a very long time. And I mean, it's, it's a crazy story. Jesus dies and they all go back to the old jobs, right? They go back to fishing. They go back to the normal life. Essentially, they're saying it's over. You know, this guy, this guy did miracles. I mean, some of them even witnessed the, the transfiguration. They go back to their old lives. But Jesus comes back. And, and it's changing everything, right? For us, it seems like it's changing the script. But like I said, this is already in the script. It's already in the blueprint. Their lives changed, right? They go out and they do crazy things. So the same thing with Paul. So it should be the same thing with us, right? This gospel that moved men, right? change the world. I always, I always go back to, to the disciples, very, very ordinary people, 
was a, was a great question that came up in our city group some few weeks ago where someone said, I'm trying to understand how these guys changed the world. Like, there's just 12 guys. <laughs> like, how, like, how do they change this? And it's amazing, and it's in God. And so, so for us, let's be part of that narrative. Let's be part of that story as rooted. Right? Let's start with our city. Let's start with our community where we are. Let's start with our complex. Let's start with our family members. Right? One person at a time. So, in wrapping this up, um, we need to be sober-minded about who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And we need to understand that there are certain principles in Christian doctrine which once we go left field, uh, they might they might show that we don't know God. It might be an indication of that we might not know the risen Christ. And I know that's a very big statement. Right? But this is what Paul is saying. And so my praise, like the Bereans, let's search the scriptures, right? I know I'm standing here, I'm talking, but go search the scriptures. Come back next week. Say, you know, I read this, but I'm not sure about this. I disagree. But search the scriptures for yourself. Read the scriptures yourself so that you understand this, so that people can't just come and tell you otherwise. All right? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we first and foremost want to thank you for your scriptures. Uh, I want to thank you that it doesn't depend on men and women of God uh, preaching the scriptures, teaching the scriptures, but it depends on your Holy Spirit. And so I ask and I pray that Holy Spirit, uh, you may be the teacher within. And pray that you may open up our eyes, open up our hearts to the marvelous truths of knowing you, Lord. That we should not be subject to the ordinary as believers, Lord. That when people look into our lives, they may envy us. When people look at how we do lives, it must be fundamentally different from how the rest of the world lives life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would invade all of our lives, Lord. Break down our high walls. Break down things that we're holding on to, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that in all that we do, Lord, we might just gain a better understanding of who you are. We may see you moving through our lives, Lord. Once again, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for mornings like this where we get to breathe your word. In your name we pray.